A sigh, a sigh, and then again, a sigh. Mulan was sitting at the door and weaving. One did not hear the sound of boom and shuttle. One only heard her heave these heavy sighs. When she was asked the object of her love, when she was asked who occupied her thoughts, she did not have a man she was in love with. There was no boy who occupied her thoughts. Last night, I saw the summons from the army. The Khan is mobilizing all of his troops. The list of summoned men comes in 12 copies. Every copy lists my father's name. My father has, alas, no grown-up son. And I am Mulan, I have no adult brother. I want to buy a saddle and a horse to take my father's place and join the army. The Eastern Market, there she bought a horse. The Western Market, there she bought a saddle. The Southern Market, there she bought a brittle. And the Northern Market, there she bought a whip. At dawn, she said goodbye to her dear parents. At night, she rested by the Yellow River. She did not hear her parents' voices calling for their daughter. She only heard the Yellow River's flowing water always splashing, splashing. At dawn, she left the Yellow River's bank. At night, she rested on Black Mountain's top. She did not hear her parents' voices calling for their daughter. She only heard the whining of Crimson Mountain's Hunnish horsemen. Myriads of miles, she joined the thick of battle, crossing the mountain passes as if flying. Winds from the north transmitted metal rattles. A freezing light shone on her iron armor. A hundred battles and the brass was dead. After ten years, the bravest men returned. When they returned, they met the Son of Heaven. The Son of Heaven seated on his throne. Their honorary rank went up twelve steps, and their rewards were counted in the millions. The Khan asked Mulan what he might desire. I, Mulan, do not care for an appointment here at court. Give me your racer good for a thousand miles to take me back again to my old hometown. Hearing their daughter had arrived, her parents went out the city, welcoming her back. Hearing her elder sister had arrived, her sister put on her bright red outfit at the door. Hearing his elder sister had arrived, her brother sharpened his knife that brightly flashed in front of pigs and sheep. Open the gate to my pavilion on the east. Let me sit down in my old western room. I will take off the dress I wore in battle. I will put on the skirt I used to wear. Close to the window, she did up her hair. Facing the mirror, she applied makeup. She went outside and saw her army buddies. Her army buddies were all flabbergasted. We marched together for these 12 long years and absolutely had no clue that Mulan was a girl. The male hair wildly kicks its feet. The female hair has shifty eyes. When a pair of hairs runs side by side, who can distinguish whether I, in fact, am male or female? Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Be the minors. Sure, they're like three years old. Minors, not minors. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down Three dead. women who aren't afraid to fight, to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building. And a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. There's one thing the history of evolution has taught us. It's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. 
Hello and welcome. This is Bite the Pen. I am Jen Hansen and not sitting across from me, but sitting adjacent to me on the other side of a wall is our fierce warrior COVID dealing powerful Charlotte Martinez. Hi, Charlotte. Hi, Jen. <laughs> yes, it happened to me. It can happen to you. Oh so be careful out there. I'm just kidding. It's not bad. If anybody is worried, I am not feeling bad at all. I just sound a little raspy. Yeah, you don't look bad either. I mean, you're, not that that matters, but I mean, you're not a man. Aw, thank you. <laughs> Jen looks wonderful, too, if anybody is curious. <laughs> oh, and I should correct myself. Your name for today is not Jen. It is Jenny Fu. Oh, boy. <laughs> and I am Charlotte. So you need to call me that for the rest of the episode. I don't think I will. <laughs> I, I, I don't want, like, the coalition of Asian American people to, like, show up at our house. They won't because you have COVID, but, you know, still. I Yeah, but I did look up a lot of names and terms, and I will butcher some of them, but I practice some. Yeah. So if I do sound horrible, I mean, that's cool, but I'm also like, nah, let's just give it a try. Today we're going to be talking about a legend, right? Ooh, that sounds interesting. Is that what, <laughs> is that what we call her? A legend she is she's the legend she's super recognized i'm sure i would say 90 percent of you listeners all five of you have heard all five of you <laughs> i got one more person to listen to us so we're up to six okay oh yay okay in that case it's probably 100 percent of our listeners know this legend <laughs> at least in one form or another and we kind of talked about this with Rapunzel and with Aladdin like there are these stories that people just sort of inherently know through different locations and different time periods because they kind of repeat themselves. I think this one differs because we are going to be talking about or Charlotte especially is going to be talking about what a legend is versus maybe like a literary character something like Aladdin or Rapunzel aren't necessarily legends. I don't actually know. These are just things I think we're going to be talking about. Totally. That's super accurate. There is slight differences between legends and literary characters or even folk tales and myths. And it has to do with historic origin. Unfortunately, legends are not always historically accurate. However, there's no hardcore evidence to prove that these people existed. And it's usually people. The people are usually the legend. <laughs> Don't ruin my dreams. I'm sorry. But that's the best part of it is that there is something in history around them. We cannot prove that the one and only Mulan did not exist, but we could consider her based from real female warriors of China. Does that mean there's potential that like Xena was a real person? <laughs> totally. Don't laugh at me. I'm sorry. I actually don't know the origin of Xena. She might fit more of the mythological yeah. figures. But, uh, and I thought about it because Jen and I talk about what characteristics define legends, and she's the one that came up with the term amalgamation. So this is what I wrote down. A legend is an amalgamation of historic and fictional details surrounding a figure which years of embellishment and agenda have formed. So both mm -hmm. embellishment and agenda are key in those two because legends, whenever they travel, do have agendas, surprisingly. And like some examples, King Arthur, 
He came from a French book, but it was based on a Celtic warrior. And something like La Llorona, she was born in South America. But, you know, we've already gone as far as making a horror movie in America for some reason. Like, it's not horrific enough. (laughs) I know. I didn't watch it, but it's just kind of weird to me. I mean, yeah, let's, I want to hear more. Please inform us about, you know, some of the, I don't know. I'm just trying to, like, continue. (laughs) I was trying to bridge it, and it wasn't working. (laughs) I think that... Tell us more. I mean, that's all I have to say about legends, but Mulan definitely fits into those categories. And there are some Chinese historians who are convinced that she was real. I mean, all for that. I think that would be awesome if she was a real person. But I can confirm that in history, it was recorded, female warriors of China really did exist and did things exactly like Mulan did. So they're not far off. And I like that. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, history is written by men. And I have no doubt that a lot of these stories are real, just not in the way that we expect them to be. Like you said, there was, you know, women warriors in China were known in history as opposed to a legend. And I have no doubt that other places had the same thing. I mean, we had that in America at the Civil War. So I don't think it's a far leap in a lot of these stories. And the stories that are still about men, I think, have obviously also happened with women. For sure. We just don't have a record of it because, you know, women don't matter. (laughs) This is what our generation is going to work on, is reviving those things that weren't recorded I mean, that sounds impossible, and it could be, but sometimes not. Historians and archaeologists work really hard to uncover those things. And that's like linguistics, too. Yeah, it is. Because I was just reading about that, too. All the female storytellers, um, usually oral, they're all oral, they're not written Mm -hmm. down. They are the legacy. Talk stories. Talk stories. I like that. I think that's what uh, one of the one of the sources we read, she she refers to oral storytelling as talk stories. And I thought that was kind of cool. I don't know. It's a little bit less like highbrow. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds better than oral storytelling, too. I mean, that just sounds so formal and like I must be 70 years old to tell this story. Right. Talk story. Do you want to tell our listeners why we're talking about Mulan, maybe? (laughs) Well... There's a few reasons. I think the obvious one is that although we're late, the remake of Mulan in live action from Disney came out a few months ago, and we were both very excited to see something like that because it is such an empowering story based on Disney's original animated Mulan in 97 or whatever. And we saw the live action version and wow, (laughs) wow. It was, what was it? It was what it was. (laughs) (laughs) It was cringy and disempowering and all over the place and just really a disappointment on every level. And that kind of got us to talking and thinking about the story of Mulan. And I believe after we watched the live action, we like immediately watched the original because we needed to like watch something good. And there's we'll talk more about like the differences in the two films as opposed to other films that were made as opposed to the source materials. But that will be in a later part. I think today we're going to be talking about the historical context and how we got to where we're at now 
and we both are feminists and I think it's nice to hear and talk about and read about uh, stories that are about women who are making great sacrifices that aren't just um, the stereotypical ones that are women in power being able to do something even under very patriarchal societies. So I think that's part of the reason I really wanted to talk about it as well. Did you have any other yeah, Thanks. I mean, I, I would add that we didn't want to just badmouth the newest movie because there is a lot of material out there already doing that. And believe me, we agree with a lot of it. But the thing that Jen and I like to do even before we get too far down that road is research. We kind of want to see what are the reasons they did what they did. And going back as far as the birth of the legend, like what we did with Aladdin and Rapunzel, we actually begin to understand the legend in a whole new light when we do that. So one of the things I was hoping we do is that we approach it from a place of understanding. And it's not our culture. It didn't come from our culture. So to respect that as well is huge. So we'll do our best, yeah. but we, we would like to share what we found. Yeah, and, and hear from anybody who wants to talk about it or wants to correct us, please do. Yes. I think we're both very curious and like we want to, like you said, know more about it. <laughs> yeah, we're just Americans talking about a Chinese figure. I mean, she means a lot to us, but yeah. man, to Chinese women, she's everything. So we would hope to speak about it respectfully. Do you want to kind of take us through the sources? Uh, yeah, but even before we actually jump into that, I mean, for those who maybe don't know who Mulan is, Mulan is a globally recognized Chinese legend whose origins began as a song of intrigue among a warring nation, and who is now held as one of the most influential feminist figures in history, and not just in China, around the world, right? Damn right. And then the second question, which a lot of people ask when we've mentioned, which is, is Mulan a real person? And the short answer is that cannot be verified. And like I said, there are historians who are just convinced and will always be convinced that she was real. And they do have certain records dating back to as far as, I mean, I think it's even as far as 400 AD when they assume the origin began. But again, those records aren't archaeological proof. It's more like, I found this and I've heard this, which we do not <laughs> denote, right? Those are legit too, but it just can't be proven. And then last but not least, our objective, because we can go a lot of directions in this, but I think based on the sources that we chose, we have five written sources and then four movies. And we'll talk about the movies in the next episode. This one will be dedicated to the written and actually majority of the Chinese origin stories. But our goal is to present and discuss the evolution of Mulan by comparing and contrasting the agendas and interpretations of those select writings and movies. And like Jen said, it'll be a lot of feminist talk. And um, <laughs> that's what so we're beware. here for. <laughs> if you don't like feminists, you better get out before it's too late. You might become one of us. <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful. <laughs> and we'll give a few things for each source. We're going to give the name of the work, the time it was created, the creator, whether that be the writer or the director. I'll give you a short summary because most of the stories will have three key plot points that they hit every time, which is that Mulan takes her father's conscription in the army. That's like drafting, right? Yes. Conscription is the same yeah. as being drafted. 
and she takes it from her father. She okay. cross-dresses as a man every time to join the army. How dare she? I know. And I, <laughs> I have a theory behind that, too. We'll talk about that a lot. Okay, cool. Um, and that she either accomplishes something big in the war itself or she gets promoted. But in any case, she sort of denies all of it to return back to being a daughter and back in her family. And we'll talk about the historic context behind the source. That's super important because that's where agenda comes in, why the writer is writing it. And then we'll just talk about whatever we want about the source. <laughs> <laughs> oh, about the sources. Okay. Oh, yeah. So not excuse just anything. me. Yeah. We'll talk about <laughs> specifics for each source. <laughs> so what kind of ice cream do you like? <laughs> it snowed yesterday. I mean, there's that. <laughs> cool. Did I leave anything out? That's good. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I was just going to repeat what you just said, which is, you know, that we'll we'll do the, the written ones for this part. We'll get to the films and television representation of Mulan and Western representation and film later. For me, you know, I've come from a film background and that's where I tend to just go to because that's like the mass media version of whatever they took the material from. And so I think that's why this aspect of what we're doing right now is so important because this is really that initial what am i trying to say <laughs> grain of i don't i like words it. are so hard <laughs> this is the grain this is like i mean yeah this is like the original nope still don't have any words for it <laughs> the seeds it's good stuff let's get going the origins <laughs> the birth the nebula this is like the the scaffolding uh, of the story in a lot of ways i mean it still has like you said like there's a lot of different variation except for like the three main aspects of like the mulan legend but it's nice to start from the beginning in terms of timeline and move closer and closer to our current time because that's it's harder to conceptualize what life was like that long ago let alone 20 years ago for people who are you know 15 right now so i think it's a good thing to have in your back pocket especially when somebody's being an asshole you can be like hey i have this information so shut it you know exactly we would like to talk about it in in fair terms because we like to yeah put a lot of opinions on movies and i love that i love that about movie watchers but then it's nice to be able to understand some points. We're not going to defend any of these versions, but we will give our opinions. So be ready for that. I Yeah. And it definitely enriches the films. I mean, the more you know about the original story, I mean, it can ruin things. But like in the first Disney Mulan, it didn't ruin anything for me. If anything, it kind of enhanced it. And seeing and watching various people talking about the differences in the film versus reality and what life was like in that general timeline depending on the film or the show or the representation of Mulan it, it's really nice to have sort of a background of like oh okay so there's like 18 different kinds of birds that are talked about in like various versions which ones and why what significance does that have it's a lot of symbolism of course but it seems like Chinese history is very much tied in with animal symbolism and there's a lot of it in all of the versions so I, you know that's like one of the things that i would have never had any clue about if we hadn't read these original sources oh, so fascinating 
And I've told Jen this when I started researching. China is so vast, not only as a country, as a populace, but its history is just bonkers. There is so much there. And I'm, Love you. I, I always wonder like how these kids in the classroom take it all in. I mean, they must go through one era a day. Like, okay, people, here's this <laughs> dynasty. You need to know this, 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 this. It's just so much information. But it's fascinating. That's assuming communist China will allow them to know these things. But. Oh, excuse me. Well, I would be surprised if they didn't feel some pride in some of this history. I, I mean, I agree completely. <laughs> but I don't know how communists think. So Totally. We categorize China into three time periods, which is ancient China, imperialist China, and then the time we're in now is post-imperialist China. <laughs> Not very creative. I know. But most of these sources are coming from imperialist China. Okay. And to be fair, all of these sources are coming from upper class Chinese men, as we would guess. Nobody else would listen to a female writer, let alone let her write these things in the first place. So That doesn't mean, however, that all of the Chinese populace didn't know of Mulan by this time. Which is cool. And there's so many... I mean, there's plays and operas and shorter stories that were done, too, that we're not going to talk about. But these are the ones that made the big public entrance. I want to see the opera of Mulan. Can we, like, track that down somewhere? That would be awesome. It would be awesome. (laughs) We wouldn't understand it, but it would be awesome. I don't care. (laughs) We know the story well enough now. I think we can figure it out. (laughs) So we start... In the Northern Way period, 386 through 534 AD. Nobody can see you, do Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'm doing like this wind motion, which you guys can't see. <laughs> so the Ballad of Mulan, which you just heard at the very beginning of the episode, is the first source that we have to go by. Around 400 AD, a song began circulating Imperial China. And like we said, it was, uh, what do you call it? Excuse me, a talk story. A talk story. So over the campfire, from parent to child, from soldier to soldier, probably. And it tells a story of a young woman, right, who dresses as a man in order to take her father's place in war. So those three elements, like we said, is based on this origin story. But this particular source has an interesting ending and I'm just going to I'm going to read out the ending again because we're going to be talking about that in our discussion which is the male hare wildly kicks its feet the female hare has shifty eyes but when a pair of hares run side by side who can distinguish whether i in fact am male or female those details for the very end those are the ones that have launched the legend that's the detail that made it famous that made it memorable that made it survive through all of this time because it would be another hundred years before anybody wrote it down Um, and like i said it can't be historically verified but (laughs) we have clues we like i'm the historian historians (laughs) have clues the biggest one being the mention of a 12-year war This was happening, if they dated it correctly, the 12-year war was happening during a divided time of China. They were called the Three Kingdoms, and it's exactly like it says. The land was divided by three emperors, and with that sort of division became vulnerabilities, especially to the nomadic clans of the north who attacked so often. This is literally the summary of Chinese history. (laughs) Is this like advance retreat, advance retreat of north and south, of north and south, 
It's constant. God. But it's fascinating because pattern exists everywhere, but it's always the nomadic, those who travel, try to survive by constantly being in trades with different cultures, different people, versus this sedentary feudal system, which was an established government of China. And they are the ones that put down roots. They built the wall of China to keep out invaders. They built palaces. They had trade route systems already in place and they wanted to keep people out. There's so much of a battle there going on constantly that people want Mm. that power. They want to be able to say, we've taken over this feudal system and now we are in charge. It is so, I mean, it's it's amazing how many times that is happening. This is one of them. And this particular war lasts 12 years. The emperor of Northern Wei, which is who they attacked, declared it with the Roran clan. I think you heard that with some of the the commentary Rorans. we were listening to. So the Rorans were a nomadic people. They were considered barbaric, but I mean, it depends on who's writing the history, right? Very much so. And they would later become the Mongols, if that's important, if you kind of track uh, that pattern. Mongols or Mongolians? Uh, Mongols. The, Mo- the That's a, Mongols. it's a, okay. it's a, I think it's a different term. It's, you know, like a nickname? Yeah, I mean, that's what I I don't know that for a fact. I just thought that, like, Mongols was sort of a derogatory term. It totally is. But in historic terms, okay. they called themselves that. Oh, interesting. And now, okay. and now in today's terms, we should call them Mongolians for sure. Interesting. But they've okay. evolutionized so many times that there's, there's multiple terms, especially used by the Westerners, right? Right. It's like Eskimos. Yeah, exactly. Like, Eskimos don't exist, but the... <laughs> indigenous people of alaska do (laughs) yeah for sure and that's i mean feel free to correct me anybody but there's a timeline of the huns which we hear in the original disney as the enemy the huns go from oh i can't even remember their chinese name but they're called the huns then they're called the Rorans, and then they eventually become the mongolians or the mongols first and then the mongolians Interesting. So the Huns are the Mongolians? By long stretches of evolution, yes. We're talking about thousands of years, but yes. Because all the nomadic clans tend to just sort of hover there in the north for a really, really long time. Interesting. Okay. Learning so much. (laughs) That's a lot of information that we probably don't need. (laughs) But that's the evidence for the time period that it's placed in. So again, that's around 400 A.D., the second clue is more obvious. There's actually a term Hunnish, Hun, as in the Huns, used in the poem, which places more or less the battle of the nomads with the sedentary people. Imperialist China usually called the nomadic clans something like Huns or Hunnish or Interesting. Okay. barbarians. <laughs> yeah, well. And then the third clue that her father was drafted by a Khan. K-H-A-N? Yeah. Do you know anything about the the cons versus the emperors? I can't imagine that I would know. <laughs> right? Because this was confusing. It, the nomadic clans tended to call their leaders cons, as in K-H-A-N. Okay. But the sedentary feudal states, they would eventually call the leaders emperors and call the land the imperial lands, right? Is that where imperial comes from? Is emperor? Exactly. Gotcha. Okay. 
what was my point? Oh, right. So if, sorry. <laughs> so, and this is where it gets a little fuzzy, but most historians believe that Mulan's family was coming from a part of North China that had just become sedentary. They were nomads and they would be used to calling their leaders cons, but they were already part of the feudal systems. So they would mm. fight for the side of imperialist China versus the nomadic lands. Because a, a lot of people were like, oh, well, then she's a, she came from the barbarian side if she was drafted by a Khan. But I read about it and they were saying like, well, no, it's just that her family were actually a non-native Chinese origin. But they were there long enough to be part of the imperialist China already. Interesting. There's a lot of, you know, nomads who become part of imperialist China and some imperialist China who becomes part of nomads, you know. That was actually one of my questions. I was like, you know, if you go up to one of the sedentary imperialist cities, can you just be like, hey, (laughs) I'm a nomad, but I'd like citizenship. Like, how does that, you know? But I guess if that's pretty common that people would go back and forth or, you know, there was a lot of shifting. It would be less stable and more, it makes a lot more sense. Totally. That there would be so much back and forth. Which is good to hear. I'm glad they weren't like, no, you guys cannot live with us. Growth. Yeah, really. So based, I mean, loosely based on all of these details, they can place it more or less during this 12-year war of the Northern Wei dynasty. For the original ballad, which is what you read at the beginning. Indeed. Indeed. And then we didn't actually mention this, but obviously there is no author there's no exact time we can assume that if it was told orally over hundreds of years that these details would probably change so it's hard to say whether the ballad i read is the most accurate out of all of the stories told orally right but i can say that during this time around 400 ad a lot of stories that were told were supernatural they liked magic back then they Hmm. liked the myths of like you said animals of deities. We already had Confucianism as an established religion, which didn't have deities or magic or anything like that. But those stories were still intriguing, especially to lower classes. So one of the historians was saying that they think Mulan lasted so long, not because it had any supernatural or magic elements in it, but the fact that a woman was dressing as a man in the army was the supernatural and extraordinary detail. Mm. And that made it, especially among soldiers, such an intriguing story and why it lasted so long. I don't know if you would agree with that. Does that sound <laughs> plausible? It does. I mean, I want to say that oral storytelling now would be very unreliable because it's not commonly used as it used to be. I feel like, you know, this is the oldest document that actually has it written down. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't really go too far off in terms of being accurate to the oral storytelling aspect of it, because that was how people got through things. And like, you know, we've always lived our life through story. It's just a different kind of story. But that it makes a lot of sense to me. I'm also biased, though, because I want that to be true. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like the historians are also saying that this was usually passed between soldiers because they weren't intrigued by the fact there was an independent woman fighting in the war. They would have been familiar with military families having daughters who could fight. That wasn't actually so uncommon. It was less common for them to join a military. They definitely couldn't do that. But under extraordinary circumstances, they would be able, I mean, some of them didn't even have to cross-dress, that they could take command. 
they could fight alongside their fathers and brothers. But I think the reason this one lasted so long was because they emphasized that she wasn't doing it as an independent woman, but rather in loyalty to her family. And that's something we'll be talking a lot about. And they term it filial piety. You'll hear that a lot for all of these origin stories for Milan. Not as a feminist, unfortunately, yet, but as a filial <laughs> daughter. Which has some interesting additions to it in terms of why they're proud of her at the end. Some of them have mentioned chastity, which I thought was really interesting, that that would be important to them. And we, we kind of discussed this at one point that in ancient China or in imperialist China, there was sort of a hierarchy depending on if there was war or not war. And being true and devoted to your family was higher than the sexism and the patriarchy in in that context. Absolutely. In the order of things, social normality was probably second to something like filial piety and virtue. So it wouldn't be impossible to assume that a father would allow a daughter to take his place in times of war because she wasn't trying to be like a man. She wasn't trying to be independent or gain power. She was just not wanting her father to die. And again, that's maybe not true because these are all male writers telling the story at this point. I mean, that's that's very true because we yeah, I was just going to say, we you know, when we were talking about this, it kind of struck me that everyone was so happy when she returned because now war is over. You would think that people would turn at this point and be like. There was a woman impersonating a man fighting in the army. I think if that had happened, which it has happened here, but I think if it had happened in a similar way here, that would be a lot more of a big deal than it is in these stories. But because, like you said, that's not their main focus. It's not like communist China where you have to stay in order in, in that sort of social standing way. I mean, that was there, but it was different that you could do something like this and be empowered as long as it's kind of like bury your gaze, like as long as she comes home and is chased and has done it for her family, she's okay. Or she has to die at the end. Either way, there has to be a moral that kind of brings her back down into her place, which is something that's mentioned quite a few times in the Disney live action, because I think that was very true of Chinese culture, of a woman returning to her place and knowing her place. Uh, It's just not necessarily something we wanted to see as (laughs) independent women in 2020, but you know, whatever. Yes, it's important to note that in every Chinese source... Mulan is still dressed as a man when she's being offered a promotion. And so denying it, she's still internalized, of course, as a daughter. So when she returns home, it's like, oh, that's great that you were offered all of these things. But none of that means anything because now you understand your role has changed and you're back to being Piat, the virtuous, the chaste. And now you're going to get married and everybody's going to live happily ever after or you're going to (laughs) die in order to have a name for yourself. Yeah. It's only in the Western versions, right, that we see Mulan not asking permission to actually go to war in the first place Mm -hmm. and revealing she's a woman while she's being given the rewards and accommodations. I mean, it's a small detail, but it's important because Chinese men would never allow a woman to continue in the military in a non-war time. Right. And they would never allow her to not return to her daughter duties or her wife duties. That's 
that's exactly what I was going to say. You know, it's like, a suit, like you, I think you just put that very well. Like, as soon as the war is over, she is returned home and she immediately changes back into her feminine clothes and is back to that role. And because it's so swift, I can see how they could get away with that because there's no question. It's never, she never takes a minute and is like, do I want to return to this place? Do I want to be the wife? That's not even a question for her. And that just like proves to me that men wrote this. <laughs> I mean, women can too, but I think that it'd be more realistic that a woman would be like, huh. <laughs> so I can be a general and like rule. War sucks, but I'll have power. Or I can just return to binding my feet and producing children. You know what I mean? I was um, yeah, and it's hard to tell with this first ballad, but when the story gets longer, when it becomes novels and plays and, you know, there's many details that get added in there. But for this first however many hundreds of years, there is no internal questioning. There's no character development. It makes sense. The action is all about cross-dressing, right? Those are the questions that come up, which is gender roles. Right. And a lot of times they make it funny. They make it humorous. They make it intriguing. They make it, I don't even know, exotic, I guess. To, and we'll talk about that in the in a few versions here, how it's like an exotic thing for a woman to be in war mm -hmm. because suddenly beautiful can mean strong, which is great. It's a step in the right direction. But again, that's for a male audience. Always. So it's only later that we get to fill in more of, well, who is Mulan exactly? What is she thinking rather than what is she just doing? Right. Yeah. Who would have thought? Yeah. <laughs> She's like a whole person. <laughs> One of the themes we might talk about is the actual transformation of cross-dressing and gender roles. And for this one, like I said, there's not a lot there yet. It's just a ballad at this time. But it's important to point out that the transition from female to male isn't the removal or the putting on of clothing, but rather in this version, it's buying supplies and buying weapons because it would have been a taboo at that time for a woman to be dressing as a man and the audience would not make that part of the story. It's just like, yeah, well, it happens. She bought a horse. She bought a whip. She bought stuff. Great. That's what women yeah, do. They right. buy things. <laughs> <laughs> and then rather when she returns home, that's when we get the added details of putting on the skirt, you know, applying the makeup, putting right. on the woman role again. And that's definitely the transition back more acceptable. Absolutely. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because that does seem to be emphasized more, even in the films. So I'm glad you said that because it's very true. I think the first Disney film was the most satisfying transition because they used Western ideas in a Eastern situation, which that can be its own problem. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but they did it so well and it was so effective that that's what I think of when I think about her transition. I don't think about some of these stories where, yeah, she goes to the market and buys shit. I don't care. <laughs> but when you, like, see her, you know, put on her, her father's armor, cut off her hair, even though it's inaccurate, it still is more effective because of the imagery there. And I think that same imagery maybe feels equally as strong to people on the other side of the coin who see her going back to her female role quote female role where she's got the really like almost uh stark makeup on of like the classic chinese uh makeup i don't know what geisha. it's called <laughs> oh it's not all geisha yeah, yeah i mean that sort of thing 
and to have her dressed in a certain way and and like you said there's some humor in these and and a few of them she is being a little cheeky about it when they're like who's this you know and then they're realizing that that's mulan which cool i mean (laughs) (laughs) but i can see where that would be a defining moment and very catching to somebody who would want who wants that who wants them to go back into their normal quote normal role totally and yeah the difference is storytellers are aware of their audiences in situations like the first disney movie done for westerners right mainly for westerners and we'll talk about why maybe that didn't work for the latest film because they weren't sure who their (laughs) audience was or they were very sure and they tried to do too much of it or they just did everything wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think their efforts were toward that end, or at least they tried to convince themselves that's what they were trying to do, which is appease these very, very different audiences. And in doing so, appeasing neither of them. Because like you said, the Chinese audience mm-hmm. can enjoy the Western version of the cutting of the hair, of focusing on her putting on the armor, because on some level, that transition they know is important to Westerners, just as we would know that transition back to female for Easterners is important. Cutting hair, women cutting their hair is such a powerful symbol for women of all cultures. I think that that also would speak to it because it is such a like ingrained there's a lot of meaning behind a woman cutting her hair what for whatever reason because hair has been so closely tied to women you're right in every culture whether it's a good thing or a bad thing yeah right and to wrap up this first first source which is the hair metaphor how it ends the final message for the poem rabbit we were just talking about hair, so hair is in rabbit, me. not hair is in hair is in hair. Yes, the animal. H A R E. Yes. Sorry. Continue. I think I'm, I don't know, and I, you know, I've only been looking at Chinese history for a few months now, but I feel like this is so innovative in itself to end with such a line, such a metaphor. And we did say that. Out of necessity, it was Mulan who takes this charge upon herself, and that's noble for the Chinese culture. But maybe not. Maybe there is also this question of when you blur gender lines, and it's in time of war where priority makes you blind to other things that seem so foolish, I mean, that seem so unimportant. Mm. But in times of economic stability, suddenly social order is important. But in times of war, not so much half the population can still fight. Isn't that a consideration? I hate to keep comparing it to this. It's like the don't tell, what is it? Don't Don't ask, ask, don't don't tell tell for America when we needed people in the army, but we did not want gay people in there. It was just like, we won't ask and you won't tell us and everything will be fine. We'll just ignore that you exist, but we need you in the army. So cool. Right, right. It's like, cool, thanks. (laughs) It's progressive, but it's a shame that it has to be under those extreme circumstances. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if it is progressive, to be honest. I mean, it's desperate, <laughs> you know, and I, I I don't know. I mean, it is. Don't get me wrong. But if that's what it takes to see that scientifically this is a thing that women can fight, this is a fact. Sometimes even when they're not intending to, those facts come up because of these situations. Yeah. And, you know, it, not necessarily just in, in the ballad, but she gets promoted consistently up until she's general because of 
her being clever and using her head and not just sheer brawn, which I think is another awesome thing to learn from something that they didn't necessarily want you to take away from it. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, cleverness was a factor for most of these women warriors, by the way, historically and fictionally, that they always brought a sense of cleverness that the male military did not have. Another reason it's like, really? Yeah. I was just, uh, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say, I think if women decided to commit war against each other, it would be brutal. Oh my God. It would be super brutal. Like, you think war is brutal. (laughs) And not even brutal in a bloody way. It would be brutal as in every tactic that you can think of cleverness and negotiation and outwitting. Oh my gosh. It's just so many layers there that it would be an amazing story. Yeah. Somebody will have to write. I'm sure they have been, but... Game of Thrones for women. Where is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. People won't watch it. They're like, eh, it's women. (laughs) Wow. All right, so let's push on a few hundred years later. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so we come to the Tang Dynasty, 618 through 907 AD. Oh, a dynasty, by the way, it's just categorizing one ruler's lineage and kinship. So whenever there's a first emperor, it's his dynasty, it's his relations that take over as ruler after him. So, you know, everything runs as a patriarchy. So let's say there's a first ruler, and the first ruler was actually, uh, his name was Qin Shi Huang. He's officially the first emperor because he united the warring states, but it was his lineage that took over after him. So every son, cousin, nephew who took control would be part of his dynasty. Gotcha. Until, like, they were completely wiped out and a new person showed up? Exactly. So some dynasties lasted really long, and others Mm. literally just lasted maybe, like, 10 years. Aww. (laughs) There's a problem, right, when the rule goes to your bloodline only and not by character or by experience. And if it's not just the son, it doesn't automatically just go to the eldest son. It can go to, like, the fifth son. It can go to the nephew. It can go to the cousin twice removed. It can go to a concubine's child. Oh, not a concubine. I thought you were going to say concubine. I was like, ooh, but no, the concubine's child. Oh, yeah, excuse me. The concubine's child. (laughs) So that's generally the dynasty pros and cons. Mm. I don't know how to call that. You know, it worked, but also like there's a lot of killing in there and a lot of demoting and gossip and sleeping with people. Very Games of Thrones. yeah. Anyway, so that's the era (laughs) that we're in. Cool. (laughs) The source is called The Song of Mulan. Not the ballad, but The Song of Mulan. Is there a difference? Uh, Well, I I don't know. Okay. It doesn't matter. I was just curious. I guess in Western terms, the ballad has a form to it, maybe, and the song is more like a free form. I don't know. Mm, Okay. Chinese did a lot of singing, so their forms and their operas and their written sources, I'm sure, have very strict rules. But when it's Mm. translated for us in English, we don't know. We can't tell. That's true. But in any case, this one is very similar to the Ballad of Mulan. And it was written around 750 AD. And it was written by a prime minister at the time. And they, you know, they are literate. They're higher class. His name was Wei Yanfu. So there are prime ministers and emperors? There's, yeah, there's many levels, hierarchies. and Interesting. 
So, like I said, what happens in the story is very, very similar. She takes her father's place, cross-dressing. There's very little that happens as a prep. They don't even do any transitions of her dressing into anything. Um, Maybe she buys, like, two supplies. It's very quick. Everything is very quick. Skip over all the good stuff. Yeah. But the one notable difference here is the ending, which I'll read aloud. She says, actually, she's singing this. I was a valiant hero, but now I am a petite woman once again. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Relatives bring me their congratulations. A daughter is just as valuable as a son. If the officials of this world could display the same virtue as Mulan, their loyalty and filial piety would not be lost. Their fame would last throughout the ages. Mm Mm-hmm. You can just cut out me laughing. (laughs) (laughs) i mean of course it has to be the petite woman and a daughter but i mean it's nice that they're like congratulating her like yay you're not dead woo that is nice Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like the bare minimum but it's good (laughs) right right actually in context this is pretty strange this is considered the golden age for women the tong dynasty is And mostly because a very strange thing happened during this dynasty. Okay. China saw its first female emperor come into power. Ooh. Yes, yes. Her name was, well, her title was Empress Wu Zuzian. And China's actually, I think they're doing a a whole series on her, um, or it's been on the air for a while. Very interesting material here. She reigned from 690 to 704 AD. So this is before this song was actually published. Suddenly, women were coming into power. It was in poetry and performance in scholarly fields. Their intellect was being praised. Nice. And having a female emperor take charge for any amount of time was just phenomenal. Do, did they call them female emperors or did they call them something else? They called them empress. Empress. Okay. I love you. Because your version is way better. Hey, were. we're Westerners. This is something we pay attention to. She did everything a male regent would have done. She took control where it needed to happen. She made decisions. She, I mean, the fact that she wasn't a woman didn't slow her down. She did, however, start off as a concubine. Interesting. Which is a prostitute, right? Excuse me. I'm so sorry. You're right. Yes. I just wanted to make sure. <laughs> it's like a higher class prostitute like a escort that's what you yeah for sure and they the emperors were allowed to have have a few of them oh how nice for them (laughs) so i mean this was all kosher they would have a wife if the wife bore them sons that's great but if they didn't they would usually use concubines for that reason and they were around in the household they interacted with the wife they worked with the wife they all shared children like everybody raised everybody else so Wu Zuzian began as a concubine. She was an educated concubine, actually, which didn't always happen. But they were hmm. sometimes on that ring of wealth where they could afford something like that. And when she married the emperor's son, it didn't take long for that son to then step up as emperor. So she became the emperor's wife. And even then, her husband was a little... You know, like we said, in a dynasty, it doesn't always work out for the next person to take control because sometimes they're inept, they're whatever. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And in this case, she knew much more than he did. So even though he was making the decisions, it was really her who, like, described everything for him. And he admitted to a lot of this, apparently. It was written down that, you know, that he was like, yeah, well, she knows what she's doing. Just ask her. Interesting. And even though he wasn't legally allowed to give her 
the reins of command when he died. It sort of just happened because she had already been making all of these decisions and knew all of these people and knew how things worked. I mean, there was a little bit of maybe like murder slash demotion. <laughs> it's a double standard to think that she wouldn't do those things. Like any male counterpart would have done the same thing. Yeah. So to keep her power, she had to do some stuff, okay? So get over it. I mean, I think that the English monarchies did far worse thing. I mean, you know what I mean? In, in the scope of the entire world, that's probably pretty damn common. Totally. But yeah, so her influence was great when she was in command. She gave voice to a lot of underrepresented nations and nice. it seemed to propel this idea that women could be just as powerful, just as sneaky, just as intelligent as men. And even though it didn't change a lot of things socially right away or in any grand amounts, they still were fascinated enough that they created more heroine literary figures, especially. Mm. And that's the reason why Mulan, again, popped up after a few centuries. Mm. And this particular author was writing during a time where the Tibetans were threatening an invasion, and they did occupy China for a while. He wrote it as a more call to arms, but the figure mm. of Mulan was used for that reason. He was saying, like, well, if this woman could do it then why what's wrong with all you men the final lines are saying if this extraordinary woman can do it well then you unextraordinary men need to step up <laughs> was the agenda but it, it was cool because he was using mulan for it so i guess you know pros and cons it, yeah any thoughts about any of that <laughs> I, it's a lot i yeah it's just like all of these you know it's got some really like nice attributes to it and then uh, then it, like, takes a nosedive, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm right back where we started. <laughs> so it's sad to think because before the Tang Dynasty and after the Tang Dynasty, women just went back to being, I mean, the foot-binding thing was huge, and we already had the widows committing suicide because they weren't deemed as good for anything. Or Once Imperial China was stable, they issued these laws that said, Men plowed, women weaved. And that for generations, including Confucianism, which again is this social order, kind of like a religion and a philosophy, but it was so ingrained in the culture. And what Confucius taught was virtue via male and female. It was very separated mm. from the get-go. Mm. And the Tang Dynasty was this weird exception. And it was short-lived, but it did happen. The other theme of transformation, there's not, like I said, it's very similar to the ballad, so there's not much difference. I mean, he writes that she removes her silk clothes, she washes away her makeup, she rides a horse and reports for duty. That's the transition into soldier. So maybe it's a little bit of something there. This was literally written like a propaganda, very quick, very to the point. Again, not, yeah, not being represented as an independent or empowered woman, but rather a filial daughter, except maybe with a little bit more pride this time upon her return. Like, she knows that she's accomplished a lot, and this might be the only time she basks in any sort of glory, so might as well milk it a little bit. Gosh. I do definitely want to, like, see that series at some point, though, because I think that'd be really interesting. Right? I wonder, yeah, I wonder how much of um, history they use versus fictional elements. If it makes it more empowering, I'm down for the changes. <laughs> oh, me too. But I mean, it, it sounds like this was all historically accurate. What I read was already so dramatic and fascinating and could make a series in itself. Nice. 
I would hope that they keep a lot of that. So we're going to stop here and then pick up in our next episode to continue talking about the sources. And thank you for listening. We appreciate your ears. That's a weird thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) And you can follow us on all the things and you can email us at bitethepen at gmail.com or you can find us on iTunes or any app that has podcasts for the most part. So bye. (laughs) Bye, Jen.